my two secrets to staying healthy all the time. And if you can't, <laughs> use or Hello, everyone, and welcome to Irenacast, the weekly podcast dedicated to conversations on faith and culture. We are your hosts. I'm Jeff. I'm Mona. And I'm Alan. Thank you so much for joining us this week. This week, I think, is going to be uh, a fun one. We're going to be talking about the church and politics. And for our segment, we're bringing in a new one called Out of Context, or as Alan suggested earlier. <laughs> no. I forgot. No, you're not going <laughs> to say what I said earlier. That's inappropriate. Something, oh. something, something, daddy. Something, daddy. Something about censoring. Yeah. So. Censor me, daddy. Censor That's what me, it was. daddy. <laughs> okay. And we it all is. immediately, <laughs> Jeff and I were like, oh, no. Let's immediately. move on from We that. tried to censor super, you. It is Super Tuesday. <laughs> Let me censor you. It's Super Tuesday, right? This, <laughs> this is wonderful. We're talking about politics. I like it. What is Super yes. Tuesday, Alan? I don't know. <laughs> it's don't a wonderful know? day when states across the union gather together to nominate their two-party system candidates so that one of them can lead the free world. Right. <laughs> yes. Something and that was, like that. That was the perfect tone to communicate that. Mm-hmm. You're welcome. It's the primary day, right? For mm-hmm. for those of us who, you know, just <laughs> so so this that just want to be concise in our communication. Yeah. It's primary day. Primary day. This Most is people what are electing their primary candidates. I want to talk about. Um I suggested this topic because I've been struggling recently with where to put politics in the church. Like where do they belong? I grew up with conservative politics coming from the pulpit and they really bothered me and i read books like jesus for president and shane claiborne's irresistible revolution and so i got this like sense that american politics didn't belong in the pulpit but now that i'm kind of in a different place in my faith and i'm preaching all the time i like when when i study scripture i it just feels inherently political to me so now there's like liberal politics coming out of the pulpit from my own mouth and I'm just wondering, like, am I doing the very thing that bothered me in the first place? So I need your help. You guys need to help me if you can. Yeah, well, you're a minister, so you ha- you're responsible for preaching. And, like, I bet these boundaries are super apropos for your immediate mm-hmm. context, right? Yeah, the congregation is divided. We do have Republicans and Democrats in our congregation. And as you guys know, the whole country is divided along party lines. So... How do you talk without ostracizing people? And should you be worried about ostracizing people? You know, there's a lot of questions. There's a lot of questions. And this is something I've wondered about for a long time as well, because I grew up with the politics coming through the pulpit. And a lot of it was because our, our senior pastor was a vet and we were near a military base. We had a lot of military families. So there was a lot of prayers for support and and things like that and trying to support the families. And we even had like a for a while, a bulletin board in the sanctuary that had all of the people serving in active duty and it was like, pray for them, you know? Um, and so for a long time, I, I really resented that because I felt like it was it was kind of pro-war in some mm-hmm. ways. But I think in retrospect, now that I've grown up a little bit, I, I see that there, honestly, the, the pastor was just trying to provide to the families the best kind of support that he or the leadership team knew how, you know? But I think that does verge into like, some shaky ground around like supporting certain pol- political candidates because they happen to be pro-military or um, yeah, there was a lot of that kind of stuff and a lot of like nationalism in our mm. churches services. And um, even they did like a big 4th of July musical every year. So um, yeah, that, that was always like really hazy. Cause I think technically speaking, I don't think the government's ever cracked down on this that I know about, but I think technically speaking, a church's nonprofit status can be revoked if they endorse a specific candidate. Yeah. That's the um, one thing is you can't, and you can talk about issues, but you can't mm-hmm. support a candidate, but even issues bothered me in the past, you know? Cause you, you can say, I support the person who yada, yada. And like, everyone knows who you're talking about. So it's like subtweeting right. from the pulpit. Do you do that, Jeff? <laughs> do you do you get political when you preach and teach? No, I don't. Um, Bull. I don't. It, <laughs> it depends. Like I, there was a time in my life where I was, you know, the the champion of right wing ideals, and and I was young and opinionated and brash. So to me, like any platform to speak, if I could. 
if I could shock someone, if I could Driscoll someone in, you know, to (laughs) just release Mark Driscoll, who is coming back, believing, amazing, believing what I believe. Um, then I thought, I thought I considered that a win. And, uh, but I don't know. I feel like when, when I approach church, I approach it like I approach my Facebook page. Like if something's really important to me, I'll put it out there in a way that invites discussion. And as Mm. soon as it turns into, debate or argument then i just check out or you know try to distract with humor or something like that so i when i when i think in the in the church in terms of politics i think i'm fine with it depending upon where and how it's approached if if it's inviting discussion then i think it's it's a good thing and it's a necessary thing in churches because we are a place where people can hopefully feel that they're being on a certain level, rejuvenated or challenged, or more importantly, above all else, connected with a community, connected with other people. And I think part of connection is learning how to deal with conflict Mm. and how to learn difficulty. I think so many times we shift our churches and try to avoid disagreement and think that that's the perfect church. But I think the perfect church is one that's able to healthily move through disagreement and debate. So I think if you take out sparks to allow that to happen, then you might be doing a disservice to your Yeah, church. maybe robbing them of their communal experience. Hmm. Yeah. And their ability and to develop true critical on, thought. Yeah. yeah, and I think it's true on both sides. Like, I think when the pulpit assumes that everyone is on like mind on an issue, yes. then that's the problem. Mm-hmm. Because then that doesn't invite anything. All it does is isolate. And I've been on the side of both of those things where I've heard someone, something from the pulpit that's very opinionated base and i was like yes i agree with that and then i've been for the for the latter part of my career in the evangelical church i've been on the other part of that where the more it was said in a way that said this is where we believe and if you don't believe this you're not a part of us then i felt more isolated and less connected to my community and it's interesting like the you know i think communities should be able to take stances on things though like on the other side of this i do believe diversity is important and debate and thought is it important important but i think that there does come times when it is important to take really normative stances and say no jesus would like support the poor you know yeah i think yeah, there's like true. S- some obvious ones and um but even then when you take a stand i think you can do that in a way that invites people in where you're saying this is a stand that we're choosing to take right now and even acknowledge, we understand that there may be even people here that don't agree with the stance. But we as a leadership, we've come together just like we don't want to trivialize it, but at the same time, we don't want to make it any more important. But just like we're deciding the color of a paint for a room or whatever, like a certain body decides that and that's just kind of how things go. But we're opening up this avenue for people to kind of talk and discuss so we can help you better understand how we came to this decision to stand on that instead of just saying, this is what it is, agree with it or whatever, but we're moving forward. I Well, I don't know about that. I mean, I guess I'm talking more about, a con- I, I, I'm not a fan of top-down decisions. So I just, I guess I just disagree. Well, I agree with that, with that methodology, but um, I, I think w- like coming in terms of coming to a consensus, because I think that's really important for a community's identity, right? To be able to say like, this is what we definitively believe Jesus would want, you know? Um, I, I mean, I get, but on the other hand, that's why we've gotten ourselves in so much trouble with religion and politics. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I belong to a congregationalist church where it's up to the individual to determine their religious convictions. But as a group, we've made statements about being open and inclusive to the LGBTQ community, participating in, you know, marches and political elements like that, that are important to us. And as a pastor, it's hard for me because I, I look at the message of Jesus and it just looks inherently political. When you study like Roman history, when you read it in the context of the day, Jesus's statements were political statements. So mm-hmm. you, you talked about nationalism being uh, a turnoff for you when you were younger. And I think that's what I kind of always return to is that I'm not necessarily interested in dividing people along party lines. I don't think that's where Christianity or Jesus, the person like fits, it's almost as if Jesus challenges all of my politics, all of my nationalism, all of, 
when I look at the United States personally, I see this industrial military complex, like the biggest significant portion of our presence in the world and in our own country is just militaristic. It's, it's violence. It's necessarily using violence to prop up systems of oppression and greed, in my opinion. And when I see Jesus in the Roman Empire, I see a very like subversive politic that it's hard not to carry over into my church. So when Veterans Day comes up or um, nationalistic holidays, things like that, it, it's always really awkward for me because there are people in our church who are veterans, people who really find identity and meaning in their American patriotism. And it's uh, like a cognitive dissonance for me as a minister to see Jesus and the, the story of Jesus critiquing all of that, just like critiquing the the kinds of country that we are. And how do I, how do you participate in that without like, <laughs> you know, consciously criticizing or c- consistently criticizing it to the point where none of those people can even participate in our community? I know it's, it's an arbitrary line, but it seems to me when I think about these things is that you can, that's that fine line of, of criticizing the system and not the people. So I, maybe if you're going to take a stand as a church against something, it should be against systems, against oppression, and never against people groups, never against individual people. So it's that like like in the, the sense of the veteran, how do you honor the veteran for doing what they believed was right without glorifying the system that put them in that place? Even if you believe what they did might not have been right, like killing. Yeah. You know? how, how, how do you – it's just, it's just tough. Like all of these, all of the most important things that I see Jesus affecting in my life and affecting my politics, it's, um, it's just weird as a minister to try not to be, to personalize your ministry, you know, to actually get to the root of what Jesus was about and to see that butting up against people's convictions is hard. Yeah. And especially if you have a national heritage or the way people tell our, uh, the story of our national heritage as being um, God ordained, like mm-hmm. God loves America, God blesses America, God gave us America and manifest destiny. And I have a hard time with the nationalism in particular because I think it can be a tremendously patriotic act to cry for revolution and for yeah. to want to protect um, the innocent and to want to maintain um, the freedom and equality, you know, that, that are, that people set out to make and when they set out to, create a new form of country and a new form of government. But it, it is hard when on those few days like Veterans Day and, and Memorial Day and 4th of July, when it seems like we should, you know, just like on Valentine's Day, some people say, okay, yeah, this is like a really commercialized, silly version of love. But at the same time, it helps us like remember and commemorate and treat with honor and deference our loved ones. So we can set aside our critical lens for one day and just come together, come together and celebrate. But on the other hand, I mean, I, I heard a recent, um, I, I've been thinking about Valentine's Day because it was recently, but I heard someone criticize Valentine's Day. Like it's a, it was a tool created by the patriarchy to like satisfy, um, to satisfy women's desire to be treated as equal all all year by just folk, like focusing in all, only on one day and treating someone super special as like a, this meta gesture of affection. And then the rest of the time that person can coast in the way they treat their partner, specifically men to women. So it, I think it can be sort of a, like an anesthetization of our consciences to say, well, one day you have to put aside your critical lens and you have to be to, like, nice. think about veterans that that way on veterans yeah. day. So I, I understand how to treat veterans it's as a minister. Complicated. It's easy. Yeah. It's actually easy in one sense because I've, no, everybody agrees whether you're liberal or conservative that what's happening to veterans because the suicide rate is so much higher than even the lives that are lost in the We're wars talking about that we recent- fight. Yeah. Recent wars. Yes, right? recent wars. Yeah. The suicide rate's so high, we realize that we're not treating our veterans well. So it's easy for me as a minister to stand up and be like, look, our veterans are in a broken system, and many of them are broken, and, and they're not receiving the help they need. And it's easy to see Christianity as a cry for justice in that in that scenario. But like, yeah. about critiquing the wars themselves, the things that put them in the place that they're in, like, that's not a very popular... Yeah. but. You know, the nationalistic thing, I think, is the main thing for me. And we've talked about that on this podcast kind of over and over through the last year. 
setting that kind of to the side for a second, what about like party politics? Can't should I be able to stand up as a um, as a minister and critique something that a politician said? Because it's what our, it's what our people are talking about. It's what our national conversation is about. And if we can't, as a church, be a part of the dialogue, like are we missing out on an opportunity? Technically, we'd lose our tax exempt status, but should we even have a tax exempt status? I mean, there's a lot of questions to think about. Um, and there's so many groups that abuse that privilege and they get away with it, and so it's hard to like. It's hard to say that it's yeah. like morally wrong because it's illegal. Like, because I think sometimes, like, like imagine if Martin Luther King Jr. like lost his tax exempt status for for speaking out against injustice and like what that if he had gotten deterred by that and not spoken out about certain things, like what would have happened to the civil rights movement? There really would have been none, you know, if that had gotten in the way of him him speaking out against injustice. But so that, I think that's the fine line to make that you have to separate the issues from the candidates and you have to separate justice from the legality, the legal structure. And, and notice like the legal structure is in the legislative structure of our government is a sphere, but that's not the only sphere that we exist in. Right. I, I think that that's a little bit easy to say that's much very more radical set. No separate. You said separating the issues from the candidates. I think that's easier to say than do when the candidates make the issues all about themselves. Like that's who they are to us. When I watched, I got sick this past, I was sick this past week, last, you know, um, week I got sick and I was on the couch all week. So I decided to watch the debates, all the Republican and Democratic debates. And I didn't realize like how entertaining it was. I don't know if that's a positive comment on our society or a negative one, but it was very entertaining. And I watched every single one. And, uh, these, the people that I see up there are the issues they're no longer just regular people they're like icons of different things so to say that i can criticize building a wall between us and mexico or um the approach that donald trump has criticizing his rhetoric criticizing his ideas is really criticizing him because that's all he is to me at this point does that make sense like it's it's easy it's easier said than done to separate people and issues so but that's exactly what you said we should do last week when we were talking about the death of Scalia and how we have to humanize the person and remember the person amidst the issues, mm-hmm. that they're not the same thing. I'm never going to sit down to lunch with them, though, you know? And and I, I don't – I'm just thinking about in church, you stand up and you say, sh- should a, a minister ever say, like, this is wrong? What, what, yeah, what we're talking about as a society at the moment, treating people a certain way, treating um, illegal immigrants in our country – as if they have no rights as human beings and we need to rip them out of their homes, families, and communities and send them back, every single one of them, and deport a fourth of our population. That's what some people are saying from the Republican platform. And should I be able to stand up in church as a minister and say, that's wrong? Or does that unnecessarily No, you can stand up people? and say that. You can say that. But that's right? the Why very thing you? that bothered Why me. You say that? But that's the very thing that bothered me when I was younger. People stood up and well, said, then, like, maybe maybe it's just a matter of and maybe this is kind of a side issue, but maybe it's a matter of like reworking the art of the sermon or figuring out how we communicate things, because the way it's set up and we've talked about this a little bit before, but the way it's set up is that the pastor is set up as the all knowing, yeah. you know, he, this person knows everything and whatever comes from this pulpit bleeds down into everything else that we are as a community. And maybe when it comes to these particular issues, it's a matter of the minister taking the time and saying, here are all the areas in which I'm ignorant about this particular issue. Here's how I feel about this issue. Next week, we're going to bring this person in who is well aware of all these complicated things, mm. and they're going to talk, and then we're going to have a Q&A after. Like, if we're going to address issues, making sure that we put it in a holistic way for people to feel like they can engage in a way that that gets away from their understanding because the the you know we talk about rhetoric and you know Donald Trump and other people going out there but there's rhetoric from the left too the way that they word things that have become so cliche that eventually they become devoid of meaning you know what i mean like even if they what they say if you wrote it on a piece of paper it's right it's there's nothing about it that's i don't know there's there's no no meat to it there's no like I don't know. So well, to be able to provide wrapped context. around sound bites and yeah, exactly. We don't really take the time to look deeply into issues. Like there's so many issues that it's almost like, like you don't have, most people don't have time to really 
research or they don't take the time to do that. But you, you um, talked it, about being humble as a minister. I wonder if the problem is we assume that ministers could stand up and give anything but their opinion. Right. Maybe that's the problem. Maybe we're expecting, maybe I'm expecting myself to stand up and give the capital T truth when really all I have is my opinion on the things that I've read or the God I've experienced or people. And Mm -hmm. we need to have a radical understanding of preaching as this is me. This is my subjective experience. I have prayed and communed with the spirit and read the scriptures. And this is my take on it. And I think that you should really consider this because I, I think it's important and I think it's important to God as opposed to this is the truth and you have to listen and follow. I would go farther than that. I would say it shouldn't be a, a one-sided discussion. And maybe that's maybe that's what I yeah. would like to offer in this. That Interesting. Maybe, maybe, yes, politics don't belong in the pulpit. They belong in the discussion of the church. And there should be spaces that aren't sermon spaces, but that are really important forums for the church to talk about things together. Mm-hmm. And, and what I would offer, like this goes back to systems theory, something we talked about a few weeks ago. Is that maybe, you know, if, if you have people in your church who, for example, believe that all the immigrants should be deported, um, instead of getting hung up on the debating the actual issue itself, I think it'd be really important to come together and talk about what has informed people's opinions and what their fears are and what their hopes are, you know, underlying that political stance. And that would, I think that would be a lot more fruitful, right? Because maybe people are actually afraid of not being able to find jobs or maybe they, (laughs) maybe they lost their job to an immigrant or maybe they lost their house to an immigrant or maybe they're afraid for their kids or, you know, way more difficult. But I think teaching people to tease out what has informed their positions is, is way like a public service, right? Because we all need to know what's formed us. Talk about countercultural sitting down to a space where we're not going to have the sound bites thrown at each other. But just sit yeah. together and talk. That's like what uh, that's what Jeff is talking about. Doing conflict well as a community, and yeah, you're talking about creating that space where that conflict can happen in a productive way. That scares me to death as a minister because basically we're trying to hold this fragile um, community together. Sometimes that has yeah. a veneer of um, commonality like we all agree on the same thing we're all together in this together when really under the surface there are things that motivate us very differently and to dig down into those things might hurt this like you know the relationships that we have but you're right that's where more deep and intimate relationship happens is when we can sit down and discuss our differences in a positive and 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 theorists call that uh, diversity minimalization where you kind of have like the rhetoric and the happy-go-lucky feelings of diversity and you kind of like acknowledge it on a surface level, but you don't really get into the thick of it. But what mm. happens is that actually blocks really deep relationships from forming because nobody wants to skirt that surface level, that's that surface level to go deeper because there's conflict under there. So they actually don't get to know each other, you know? So I, I, but there are ways to do that. People have invented methodologies that help communities, um, kind of what some theorists call engage impasse. And one of the, ones that I think is phenomenal and I swear by is called circle process. And I did some training on that recently. And I think I've told you guys about this before off air, but circle process is incredible. It was developed by like, um, indigenous communities, methods of dealing with conflict outside like legal structures. And so it's actually based in conflict resolution. And a lot of people are using this as alternatives to, um, to like, putting cases through court and like dealing with mm-hmm. issues on a communal and a family basis. So there's, there's actually a lot of great resources out there that maybe people don't know about to handle and to have these really hard discussions. But it actually, what ends up doing is really building the community. The United, in a deep way. the denomination I'm a part of tries to do that. They do something called sacred conversations where they have little circle spaces. I think they use the same methodology. I don't know for sure, but where they talk about race or something, some sort of injustice, and then people are allowed to speak from all their different experiences. But that happens at like a minister level, not a congregational level. Well, it's interesting that when we talked about this and when we're thinking in terms of church, when we recounted what we heard growing up, we all went back to what we heard from the pulpit. Mm -hmm. And I can't tell you, I can't count on one hand how many times we had anything outside of the pulpit as a way to communicate or discuss an issue that we as a church were grappling with. So that goes back to Mona, what you were talking about earlier, that whole idea of the top down thing, you know, there seems to be very little avenues for these circle discussions and questions disarm. Like I have a easier time talking to someone 
who I disagree with, if I understand why we disagree and why that issue is important to them in the first place, as if I just saw their, you know, flip it, uh, Facebook post or tweet or whatever that says, you know, here's what I believe. And I, I have to, how do I get past that? And if we don't create ways to get past that, not only from, from us who believe that we're right to the other person, but from the congregation to the pulpit, like if the, if someone from the pulpit is putting something out there, this is fact and all that kind of stuff. And you don't allow for an interaction the other way, we, there's nothing can be done about that. You're just going to frustrate or isolate people or, encourage a greater divide. And part of it is just the structure of church. Mm. How do you communicate and create those connections when you, everything, everything in churches, whether it's been in evangelical churches or now in more progressive churches that I'm in now, everything comes down to Sunday morning. And I think that's a flawed perspective of the church in general. Yeah. And it seems like, uh, man, this is one of my biggest beasts with churches and honestly, why I don't really why I've, why I don't attend? I understand on one hand that sermon writing and sermon delivery is an art form, and it's a long tradition, and a lot of people love that tradition. It doesn't m- mean much to me personally because it's a monologue, not a dialogue. And I think everything in our modern technological world is pointing toward interactive dialogue. Like we have not just people posting articles online, but people able to talk back to those articles. Like yeah. all of it is um, creating dialogues and meta dialogues and church still has this really old model of one person talking at everyone else no offense to anyone who does sermon writings because i'm sure those sermons are awesome but the point is like i think i think the church alan i love you so much and i have tremendous respect for what you do but i think the church has an opportunity to Mm -hmm. be a space where people can talk across really strong differences and we are so gridlocked in this country around the two party system that when when projects across the aisle actually go through like when john mccain and elizabeth warren actually work together it makes national and international news because we're so gridlocked <laughs> into our ways, you know? And so, and so our I think congregations, the, we just don't talk about it. Exactly. Right? Exactly. You just don't talk about it. And, and because it's split churches, because like it, it can be explosive, it can be harmful to people's relationships and their psychology and their emotional, it can cause tremendous damage if it's not handled well. So I understand why people avoid it. I can, I, I know of people who've been involved in church splits over politics and over Facebook debates of politics. I know of pe- people for whom their church split over one Facebook thread, which is bonkers that that so can happen these if days. Jesus is truly countercultural and political at the same time, maybe the most political thing we can do is go against the way we do politics as a country and actually create space for conversation. You know, there's that's a, what I'm yeah. saying. Yeah. There's a guy, Howard Hendricks was, uh, he's a really conservative Dallas theological seminary professor for many years. I read his books in Bible college that really inspired me into teaching and preaching because his like teaching methodology was just, I ate it up when I read it. Anyway, he, he said when he teaches and also when preaching, it's helpful. He has found selecting three people for a panel, very diverse people, different backgrounds, different experiences. Have those three people ready when you're done with your sermon to ask questions so that they're prepared. So the second it's done, it becomes a dialogue and they can, That's cool. they can push back. Yeah. They say, okay, so you said this, but what does that actually mean? Like, what do you think about this? Have you ever thought of that? And these three people are kind of like a voice of the congregation that changes it from a monologue to a dialogue. I've never tried it. I've actually only seen it once on a video, but something has to be done to create that space more often. Or people can tweet questions in. I know actually some evangelical pastors do methods like that, but but I I, I do understand the the (laughs) problems. That still feels almost paternalistic, though. You know, I've do, seen that. Do I've seen that so? done. Yeah, I've seen that done. But it's more of, and it's kind of like what we do here. Like, you know, someone tweaks their question, and then it's like a guru answering the question, as opposed to yeah. inviting them to actually share their experience, not just a question, but like, this is my experience, and this is give yeah. rise to my question. And every congregation, I'm sure, has that one person that like feels like a 20 minute story is an appropriate setting for <laughs> a group dialogue, you know, and yeah. wants to talk about their dog and. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I once went to a Bible study of like very s- sweet people. I won't say anything about them because I don't want to come across as like negative in a certain way. But, you know, it's 
it's hard for those of us who exist in academic spaces where people have like have read things and have informed opinions. And then you go into a Bible study setting or a, a dialogue setting, you know, with folks that um, are very well intentioned, but really don't have a critical lens. And, you know, like in this particular Bible study, I'm going to sound like a jerk right now. So just be prepared. In this particular Bible study, we were reading the story of Noah and this one person raises their hand and goes, I was in a flood once. And we're like, okay, why? <laughs> Like, I don't know. It was you are a jerk. That's just, wonderful. I, I, no, everybody I don't needs know. to bring no. their experience. To that's, that's awkward. Oh, it, it was awkward. It was like, well, yeah. we're, we're, it was interrupting the even the reading of the narrative. It wasn't even like an appropriate time don't, to talk. Don't about. you appreciate that though? People that are not <sighs> in the <laughs> seat of power bringing their experience to the reading. Come on. Well, that has ideologically, yes, but <laughs> it bothered have, me when I was in class. We need some we would, structure. Whenever we need to read the room, man. Whenever we discussed the philosophy in philosophy class in my undergraduate, it was almost like an onion. We would just keep unraveling till we get to the core of the, the what we're talking about, just like layer after layer after layer. And then someone would ask a question that's like fifteen layers back. It was a little bit frustrating, for sure. But yeah, that's so you. You need people who are trained in like moderating and, yes. and upholding dialogue to make this stuff happen and to make it but, safe for everybody to be able to express what they really do believe in a yeah. safe way yeah. that doesn't harm other people and that's not to say and i know and i know uh, you know 100 percent, mona this is not what you're saying but that's not to say that we should have so many qualifications on someone before they're allowed yeah. to speak oh, like there has to be not. a place yeah I'm saying exactly. there has to be a proper structure like that helps everyone have equal space in the room and some people yes. just take up more space in the room than others and are not as self-aware as like others. me <laughs> yeah. and so if you do the thing where somebody you hold a ball of yarn and you pass it every time you talk I'm always the person who has the big, biggest clump of yarn at the very end because it'll be strings across the whole room. And every time someone speaks, they get to hold a little piece of the yarn. I always have the most and I feel bad. Maybe one of our <laughs> ana- ana- analytically minded listeners should go through all of our no, episodes and please. give a percentage on <laughs> who spoke and who most. interrupted the most. It'll be me. I'm the well. It- Queen. And what what I learned doing these circle groups and conflict resolutions, actually, the people who y- talk less often have the most insightful things to say. No offense to Alan or myself, who talk it. a lot, but often as the most. Insightful I'm just going to say thank you, Mona. <laughs> <laughs> and often, um, often those folks won't speak unless unless outright invited to speak because they don't feel comfortable jumping in, and so it's it's really really important to create space for everybody. So I guess okay. So going back to our original cu- question, like what's the place of politics in the pulpit or in faith community? Actually, now that we're talking through this, I think I have a firm stance on this. My my firm opinion to this answer Let's to hear this it. question. I think that because the pastor is this has the same amount of citizenship as everyone else in the church, it shouldn't Ooh. come from the pulpit. I think when the pastor has more of a political voice than everyone else, then it, it sets them up as a super citizen who, who has more right to speak, right? But, but what but if everyone the gospel has one is vote. political? Well, no, I think I'm saying when it comes to actual like definitive issues and like campaign things that people are voting on like currently mm-hmm. or, okay. you know, especially, especially not to endorse a certain candidate, but you know. Well, okay. So, yeah. So two things for that. Is that from from a pastor's perspective, number one, is that as a pastor, you're not a part of the community anyway. You're a hired hand. Like the whole system has to be subverted in churches to really accomplish that wholeheartedly because a pastor comes and goes, the people of the congregation are staying there. And in most churches, there's even an unwritten or sometimes written law that when the pastor leaves, they literally need to leave. They can't stick around. They can't communicate because you need to leave room for the next person. So I, while I 100% agree with that statement, that is much easier said than done when it comes to the position of a pastor, because I think that would, to really do that well, it would require a very different dynamic on the way that the church structure views that position in the first place. Interesting. So this is part of a larger conversation. So maybe, maybe the pastor can be responsible for articulating the like the denominational or community stance that the community is like officially taken. And, but, but I'm saying more to their own personal opinions about politics and what, and how you should vote. I think even if it wasn't illegal for pastors to endorse a certain candidate, I still think that should be an ethical code because pastors wield so much influence it's tremendous. And as a pastor's kid, I, I, and I'm sure you guys can attest to this too, but um, I mean, I, I, I've seen people put pastors on a, a, an extraordinary pedestal and it's not healthy for anybody. And pastors try, I've seen pastors go out of their way to say like, I'm not 
I'm not God. I don't speak for God. But people do that anyway because that's a cultural thing. And you can't prevent people from taking your word as gospel. So how do you create a system or a structure that's going to prevent people, that's going to cause people to like think more for themselves and, and encourage them to think more for themselves? And if Jesus was actually questioning the authority of Rome, sitting there as a preacher of the gospel and putting people in power by using your power to manipulate or to influence people to just select a certain candidate is the very thing that we should be going against as ministers of the gospel anyway. Yeah. So I want to, I want, I think we should end on, on this question. So we're talking about what is the place of politics in the church and all that kind of stuff, but what makes something political? Like, what was political now wasn't political 20 years ago. So if a church starts talking about a particular issue and then it becomes political, because the idea of politics is subjective in of itself, where do, what do we do with that? Because I think if we have a system where it's a dialogue and not a monologue, then it you can pretty much talk about anything you want. I'm saying like if you have that larger systemic change, then you don't have to figure out political or non-political. Like you always bring those conversations to the group discussion that's what i'm trying to say but but once it becomes political in the eyes of like what what makes it political Je- like jeff's on to something because we honestly we talked about the refugee crisis before it became a refugee crisis at the youth uh at our church because it was a part of our denomination's identity was that we we took care of refugees people who were fleeing and we we, we thought of a lot of quote-unquote illegal immigrants as refugees as you know the interviews in the past have shown on our podcast but the moment that um the civil war led to this large influx of refugees to europe and to america and then all of a sudden it became a national conversation pretty soon it was politicized and now it's a marker of whether you're a conservative or a liberal and we well, were talking it was, about it before that and then all i would of say a sudden, it was political long before it was politicized mm-hmm. okay. in the media I, I think it's political if it has to do with current events, legislation, and the commonwealth and the common good. <laughs> that's that's political. Okay. Basically, all social ethics are political. Anytime you're dealing with what is the right and best course of action is political. Anything you're dealing with, like laws and maybe I can give you maybe I can give you an political. example so you can help me. Here's a ex- uh, concrete example. We talked about God loving our entire world. There was a psalm that talked about God's faithfulness to the world, extending even to the animals. Um, there's a psalm that says God saves animals and God cares for our environment was kind of the theme of the the Sunday and not very far. We talked about the, the Delta tunnel thing. I think I've mentioned this in a previous episode, but to stand up there and say, we need to oppose this legislation that threatens a wildlife refuge. If I stand up and say that, am I unnecessarily politicizing the message or should I, or should we just allow people to connect the dots themselves? Like, Oh, God cares for the world. Th- this application is political, so I can't say it. I just need to let them kind of find it for themselves. Like, is that? Well, no, I think you something- can. St- I think there's a third way you can stage the conversation and say, like, given what we've been talking about and learning, what what is our interpretation of this event what do we as do a community? Here? How can we talk yeah. about it? What do we do together? Yeah, and then if when people get to talk about it, they get to take ownership of it and they get to feel empowered, which is really important in in a world where a lot of us feel dis- disenfranchised from our political systems. I would love to go communal, to a church like that. <laughs> those com- those community molecular political entities and communities are and, and discussions are super important. Um, I want to offer one really interesting thing, and I um, I'm I'm taking a class on political theology right now, so this is really apropos for my personal studies, but. Uh, we I came across this book in the, one of the syllab, syllabi syllabuses called Hebrew Republic, and it's a really interesting. This is this was fascinating to me because I think what happens to a lot of us in liberal land is that we want to we want to separate church and state because we don't want either one to get too powerful, and we are really wary of people who call for a theocracy, right, and and want the kingdom of God to like look like the American government or vice versa. Um, but this book has a really interesting exposition on how when Hebrew came to be studied through the Protestant revolution and the Hebrew Bible was not read anymore as an allegory for Jesus, but those texts were taken more like contextually for themselves. And, um, people started reading the Talmud, which are commentaries on the Hebrew Bible by ancient Jewish scholars. Um, then the, a lot of the leaders in the, in the, um, Renaissance and the, uh, Protestant Reformation era 
recovered ideas of religious diversity and tolerance and building a commonwealth for all people from these texts. So what I'm trying to say is that was a lot of like uh, shop talk, <laughs> but what I'm trying to say is that that just because you bring religion into conversation with politics doesn't mean you're automatically calling for a theocracy or calling for no religious diversity. Actually, this author argues that the ideas of religious diversity and common good come from religion and are inspired by um, Jewish thought in particular. So I was really excited about that because I think a lot of people will say, you know, our, our governmental structures are secular and religion has no place in the conversation. But actually, a lot of people would say that the governmental structures come from religion and therefore they're always going to interact always like and so drawing a line feels that's fuzzy a middle way fuzzy that's a middle way because i've heard people say our country was founded on christian principles and we should be a theocracy that's where our we should be a christian theocracy yeah. right so it's either all or nothing but maybe that and is- other people say no we should have an atheistic state and there should be no place for religion but i think it's totally fair to be like my religion inspires me to take this stance because i believe that god loves creation therefore i oppose the delta thing like that's that hmm. that's what i think we're trying to get at that it's it's appropriate as long as you're holding it kind of loosely and humbly to say, no, my religion does inspire me to see the world in this way and to work mm-hmm. for change. Like but there are places to not be humble, though. Martin Luther King, right? He he took a stance and it wasn't even humble. I guess it was so, humble. I, we should, we should have a whole conversation about humility. What, I don't, <laughs> we, we don't know what that is. I think we have uh, all d- very different views on what humility is. <laughs> that, maybe that we'll save that for another time. <laughs> yes. All right. So what are what are your takeaways for this this conversation? I hear you guys saying something awesome. I came in with a question and now I'm leaving with a little bit more of a feeling that there needs to be dialogue. Politics require dialogue or it's just the same old stuff that's causing problems that we have right now. Yeah, and there are really amazing church traditions that have incredible political legacies like the AME, the African Episcopal Methodist Church of America. Like, look at, read the history of that church and what they've done for civil rights. Um, totally amazing, very inspiring. So I think the church can be a place to empower people for like regaining their political voice and fighting against oppression. And it has been for many, many, many years. So when you participate in politics through your local faith community, you are also tapping into that amazing legacy. And I would say if you are involved in church leadership, be creative about how to create that dialogue. Don't be afraid to subvert your own system. And if you're involved in a congregation that's not necessarily in the leadership of the church, if feel comfortable to question that, that leadership or those stances in a way that's that's creating a dialogue like we've talked about. I think that's kind of the theme is is creating that space. And if you're in a place that won't allow that space to be created, then, you know. I'm not going to say what you should do <laughs> to your own conclusion. So on that, I think that's a, that's a good way to end. Let us know what you think, because we obviously, I feel like I'm leaving with a few more questions than I have answers. So if you have anything to add to this conversation, you could do that at the show notes at irenacast.com slash 52. That's irenacast.com slash 52. On the other side of the music, we will be playing our brand new segment out of context. Okay, so I'm I'm kind of excited about this. I think this is going to be fun. So how this segment is going to work that we're calling Out of Context is each of us have come up with two quotes from one of the many presidential candidates this political cycle from either side of the fence. And we've taken a quote and we've censored very specific words within the quote to make it sound as though it is a Dirty. risque. <laughs> <whatever>. <laughs> Uh, so, and then the, the job of the other hosts is to guess what the person is actually talking about. And then we'll reveal who get the quote. Does that sound, sound like a good explanation of what we're doing here? I think so. I think we're good. Okay. So who would like to start? I can start. Okay. This is a quote from Marco Rubio. He said, what I'm not, I can't control other people's. If they decide that's what they want to do with their time and money, they certainly have a right to do it. (laughs) (laughs) Hmm. (laughs) what is the censored word can you can you read it one more time yeah what i'm not i can't control other people's if they decide that's what they want to do with their time and money they certainly have a right to do it (laughs) 
Um, from a Republican. Hmm. Not a an abolitionist. <laughs> not if, socially. If people, if people Republican want, Party, liberal. Alan. That's a yeah. big word. What? No, no, no. Oh not my socially gosh. liberal. Person. That was horrible. That was horrible, <laughs> Jeff. Saying that that's too big of a word for a Republican candidate. Wow. No, I was saying abolitionist because he's referring to alcohol. If people want to drink alcohol, they want to do that with time their time and their money. That's fine. What is this? Nineteen twenty-two. What? Why would he say that? No. I can't think of anything, honestly. That he would Jeff, say. you got anything? I'm just going to go simple, since I would say that. Well, I'm not going to give my great opinion, but it almost always seems to come down to money. So I'm wait, but then he said that. Now I'm confused. Uh <laughs> man, I don't know. That's that's difficult. What did he I'm say? I'm just going to guess and say. Yeah, just tell us what he said. The word was campaigns. Oh. oh. That makes sense. Yeah. Very nice. <laughs> it's not even a good quote. It's just... <laughs> it's just when you, I'm telling you, it's this just is when harder. You admit the, if, when you admit the word, it's just... Okay. I've got a good here. one. Yeah. Okay. You ready? All of the... <laughs> flirted with me, consciously or unconsciously. That's to be expected. Who said it? <laughs> I'm not going to tell you. Can you guess? Alan, no, you have to tell us. It makes more... It's funnier if you tell us. No, I don't want to guess. Donald That's Trump. not the game. Donald okay. Trump. Can you say all the quote one more the, time? All of the flirted with me, consciously or unconsciously. That's to be expected. Oh, boy. <laughs> Must have been the hair. <laughs> <laughs> I w- if I were around that hair, I wouldn't be able to not flirt with him anyway. Hey, isn't it, isn't it men who are either tall or have a lot of money? Isn't that what it is? Just one or the other? I don't know. No. I think... People all are right. into all kinds of things. <laughs> so I'm going I'm to say reporters. All the reporters flirted Ooh, with me. That's a good guess. I'm going to say news outlets. No, that's too similar to what Jeff said. I'm going to say, I'm just going to go ahead and say women. Just okay. all of the women. Yeah. <laughs> it is women, but it's yes. technically, he says, all of the women on The Apprentice flirted with me, consciously or unconsciously. That's to be oh, expected. Boy. <laughs> Oh I, I can relate. Every woman I've ever met, all she did was flirt with me constantly from the time I met her, you know, to the time she walked away. That's it. If by flirting with you, do you include like, hi, how are you doing today? <laughs> like, is that, how are we defining flirting? <laughs> That's the question. Just, just general conversation. Yeah, it's just impossible. It's, it's expected. It's impossible with someone with that kind of animal mag- magnetism to, uh, yeah. to have a regular relationship with a woman. It just doesn't happen. Yeah. Interesting. It doesn't happen. Okay, here's my <laughs> here's my quote. This is from Jeb Bush, former Florida governor. Oh no, he dropped out. I I like his face. I don't know. He's a seems like a sweet person. You know, he doesn't seem like he's very menacing to me. He seems like a sweet person. Like a loaf of bread seems like a sweet person. <laughs> <laughs> I have no comment. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so here's the quote: Donald, you're not going to be able to your way to the presidency. That's not going to happen. <laughs> oh boy! <laughs> I'm going to oh say arm God. wrestle. I was going to say either pay or shout. I'm going to say shout, shout. And you're saying strong what? arm, strong arm. Because I, I think... can't say sleep with. Oh, you just said that. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking of a different word, but you sleep. Know, yeah, exactly. very nice. Very nice. Uh, okay, so yeah, you're kind of both right. The word just... is insult. Okay, insults. Uh, Jeb's wrong. I think that's. I'm sorry, but he's dead wrong. That is, uh, Donald Trump can do that. <laughs> Apparently, is doing. It feels that. like he's I on the road towards that. Yeah. Oh boy. Okay. All right. My next one comes from Hillary Clinton, and she says, "My two secrets to saying healthy all the time, and if you can't <laughs> use or." And the other is hot peppers. I eat a lot of hot peppers. For some reason, I started doing it in 1992, and I swear by it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. Yes. Hey, the hot pepper thing actually is true. It uh, increases your um, hormones that burn fat, but that's a side nice. topic. So what What does she swear by? All the time. And if you can't, use or I'm going to say laugh all the time. And if you can't use love and compassion. <laughs> you, you know why I say that is because those to me feel very generic 
and <laughs> that's the that's the impression i get of hillary is that this this kind of like you know paint by the numbers speeches that kind of hit all the main points but have no hey it's an art them. but that's it's my an, opinion she's I'm a sorry, very but established politician yes she knows it's what she's yes. Doing. art yeah. exactly. to avoid sound bites these days it, it it's painful you that's have true. to like, that's a good point yeah there's some pressures on them that we, we should have. do this game later with our quotes from the past <laughs> shows oh uh, boy or just a show of sound bites you can remember what stuff. we said Man, I don't know what I can say that's not going to sound dirty. Um, what <laughs> <laughs> I I would say, hug my kids all the time, and if you can't use a pillow, hug a pillow, make yourself. Oh. <laughs> the way that sounds the, the difference hug between a hugging a pillow and you or, know suffocating your child, or use a, a tree or a stranger's child. <laughs> Alan's <laughs> so gonna go with hugging, and Jeff's gonna go with. What'd you say again, Jeff? Smile, smiling, laughing, laughing, la- laughing. All right, my two secrets to staying healthy: wash your hands all the time, Ooh. and if you can't, use Perel, Perel, or one of the other sanitizers. Wait, she's advocating for creating super bacteria. That's like undemocratic of her. What? No, I'm pretty sure Perel is just one of her sponsors. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Who makes Purell Johnson Big and Johnson soap. or something? Yeah, probably. she turned around and there was like yeah. a badge of it on her uh, blazer <laughs> next to her Pepsi logo. Sorry, uh, that's just my cynicism coming through. I apologize. <laughs> you're against Big Soap, Jeff? Is that? What I, <laughs> yes, I am. Uh, that's awesome. Okay, okay. Here, here's another one. No one can make you feel without your consent. And I didn't realize we were supposed to do candidates from the present, so I chose Eleanor Roosevelt. I did not know that it was current politics. You're not paying attention, man. Of course okay, you did. wait. No one of can make you did. feel inferior without your consent. Ooh, nailed it. That's, That's right. a famous quote. That's why so you, I knew it. So you knew it from a famous yeah. woman. Yeah. I thought it was funny. Why is it funny? I think it's more no funny that you, you feel- chose Eleanor Roosevelt, <laughs> that your mind automatically went back to like the 30s and 40s. And that's well, you're just thinking where you're no, one, no one can make you feel sexy without your consent. Or, you <laughs> <laughs> or feel other things. But that's just. Oh, well. Right. Hmm. <laughs> wow. All right. That was supposed to be. We we're supposed to make dirty jokes. Is what I thought. I'm reaching here. No, we were supposed okay. to make it sound dirty. I, I, this is, not like this actually. Is that's an house. actual famous okay. quote from Eleanor Roosevelt. Okay. I'm an idiot. <laughs> you're not an idiot no one can make you feel like an idiot without oh that's consent. right oh my gosh i don't consent to you guys laughing at me right now okay. <laughs> you can laugh but i will not internalize this i'm beautiful and smart and oh my goodness. everybody likes me is this the podcasting equivalent of bullying <laughs> i think so Alan, this is my you own are beautiful too. and smart, hey, and look, everybody my likes My family's you. laughing at me again. I just said this is what happened early on. It's because oh we love gosh. you, because you're awesome. I know, I know. And you let yourself be the brunt of the joke, which I think takes a big person. Okay, only I think that there's a causative thing there. I think I was the brunt of the joke so much to where it's just comfortable for me, and it's actually really tragic. So <laughs> it's, it's like your childhood blankie. <laughs> it is. It's comfortable. Jeff, I don't what's like yours? being the brunt of the joke. I'm not. <laughs> All right, here's the it. last quote. <laughs> Okay, this is this is from Bernie Sanders. Feel the burn. Can these guys talk about anything other than their desire to? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm gonna say kill. I'll just say it right away because that's probably what it is. Bomb people. He's probably talking about the Republican candidates, but other but it could be any number of things. I I, jerk I did, off in the woods. I was about to say. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to say I did want to. You said it's something about strong arm, uh, Donald Trump strong yeah. arming, and people doing stuff in public, and how these debates are so like weird in public. It. I wanted to use the term masturbatory for what happens in front of the whole. It's, it's like voyeurism. We're Those all debates watching are these totally people. masturbatory. They, they they are just vitriolic, yeah. just pouring what comes to mind. We're just going to do it in front of everybody, and it's shameful. But we'll eat it, you. We will, uh... but to know that it's completely, <laughs> but to know that it's completely, <laughs> completely I mean, calculated listen. is quite disturbing, isn't it? I don't even know. It's like calculated yeah. it is idiocy. All of it is calculated. You know, like, I'm not. Did you know that PR people are now advising um, people in the public like how to move so that they can be like 
like gifable, like so that the movement that they have within a thing that there'll be a meme or a gif and they or gif or whatever people say. Um, wow! So like it's it's down to that minute thing. Like if you move like this, it'll be fun and it'll get more play. What it's crazy, in the right? World? You, you know, Man, we I, live in a crazy I can't time. say this. I can't say this from the pulpit, and because we are unregulated here, I can say it here. I apologize to all my Donald Trump supporting friends and family, um, but I honestly believe deep down that Donald Trump does not want to be president. I really do believe he is doing everything in his power to get some of the limelight and to get a lot of the positive things that he stands to gain as a corporate entity himself. And he's just trying to say outrageous stuff and do things that will disqualify him. Problem is his followers won't let it happen. (laughs) They're going to push him all the way to the top and not let him back away after saying something that, you know, breaks all the rules. So So you think he's just garnering up publicity for a new reality show? No, kind of. I think people are, I think people are so depth. I think people were so desperate to prove that corporations are people too, that they're putting one in the presidency. (laughs) Man, that, that could be like a, a conspiracy novel or something, but I mean, to the same degree that Trump is kind of changing the game, Bernie's trying to change the game on the total opposite end of the spectrum of trying Mm -hmm. to take the money out of politics. Like no matter what you think about, sorry, that's a noble, that's a noble thing. I feel like Donald is just taking advantage of the limelight. And I think he's trolling the entire country. Yeah, it feels that way. It, it does feel do, that do you, way. Do you really think? Do you really feel like he's serious that he wants to do that job? I don't think so. I think he's just really like waiting for the nation to be like, "All right, dude, that was enough." <laughs> like, well, he'd either have know. to like leave his business exploits, right, because it's such a demanding yeah. job, or basically turn the White House into a business if it's not already. It, yeah, like, but like, well, all the other politicians are talking about you know not taking big donations and stuff like that, but like. Trump is the donor, so it's <laughs> it, you know he's he's so he talks he's about oh I'm not taking all this stuff. Stands to benefit. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, interesting. Dang. Probably anyway, get in the office. Do you want to know the end of the quote, show. or are we just gonna you know? Oh, sorry. Yes, I do. Well, yeah. What did Bernie say? Because I'm feeling the burn right now. I need to know. <laughs> I think Alan, you're the closest. It's can these guys talk about anything other than their desire to go to war? Yeah. Oh wow. Seriously, it was a tweet from Bernie Sanders during the Republican debate in September. Well done. You know, I, I don't mean to just slay oh. all the Republican candidates, but I can't listen. I, I said I listened to all the debates, right, when I was sick. People said stuff like, we're going to make the sand glow. Like, who? That's like, what that's just that insane. Mean? Carpet bomb. Like Ted Cruz said he wanted to carpet bomb the terrorists and their families be- and do it so much that the sand glows on during a debate. And I was like, I, Lord. I, I don't even think we should. I think we should. I'm not going to call for like vigilanteism, but metaphorically, we need to like revolt against that kind of rhetoric from our leaders. Like those people should be banished and exiled. That kind of like we should make the carpet glow with them. <laughs> no, 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 no. We should we should banish them and exile them from our public sphere. I don't think people who misrepresent who we are to that kind of extent should even be allowed to speak in public anymore. But, and I, I know but that the, that's the problem is, and you know, this segment's turning into a new episode, but <laughs> you know, the problem is, is that people are voting so that there's that striking a chord with someone or some group of people. And we've created a system where no one is who they say they are. And I think that's why oh, for yeah. me, Bernie Sanding is so re- Bernie Sanders is so refreshing. Bernie because- Sanding. <laughs> Bernie Sanders. because uh because it, it just seems genuine and to me that's that's so rare in general when it comes to the political process like i think donald trump like i agree i think donald trump is playing a character i think he's gotten used to the the publicity mode he he, of a reality television star recently and I think he that, said he would act completely different if he was the president yeah i saw that and not <laughs> only that but i think honestly and this is again this is just my opinion but i think hillary is a different side of that same same coin where she's been in the political game so long it just feels that nothing new yeah, I don't know. It's not inspiring. It's like, okay, that's fine. She's a I, I, she's a mystery to me. I there are so many people that criticize her so often they've made a profession out of it that I don't even know how to That's very true. Her. It's there's it's hard a, or anybody. There's a conspiracy out there that actually makes sense to me that Trump has is basically um consorting with some of the other candidates who shall be re- remain nameless because I, I can't validate this i think but there might be evidence <laughs> to suggest that he's um conspiring with certain other candidates to be become a foil for for them and drive people toward them by becoming, he's the heel like, their big ba- oh, their exact awesome. inverse 
their exact inverse. Yeah, that's like isn't that nuts? That's like wrestling, right? Get that the heel yeah. that drives I could do the hero. It's very interesting. I mean, super yeah, interesting. It's exactly what it is. Though yeah. I think this is a perfect way to end our <laughs> political episode is with conspiracy theories. It's perfect. <laughs> and us so, endorsing or not endorsing certain candidates. Awesome. Exactly. So that'll do it for us this week. If you enjoy what you hear or are completely irate with what you hear, <laughs> let us know. And you can contact us all the time at irenacast.com slash feedback for all the ways to let us know your opinions, questions, comments, concerns, and everything regarding the show. And if you'd like to support the show because you love it or like it, um, you can do that and find all the ways to do that at arenacast.com slash support. So for this week, this super week, this super Tuesday, I'm Super Jeff. Tuesday. I'm Mona. And I'm Alan. Thanks for joining the conversation. Let's make it a dialogue. We did it. We talked about it. We, you keep ending with whispers, right? It's getting disconcerting. All right, should I press stop now? I'm doing it. Okay.